Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. It was great to be asked to moderate this conversation tonight because I am a never-miss-it reader of Tom Edsel's column. And uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's much to my benefit, let me tell you. Uh, revisiting the last five years through the pages of this book was kind of wonderful and sobering because it was like watching time-lapse photography. If you've ever seen a camera focused on one place and it quickly revs through the seasons and suns rise and set and water rises and falls and trees lose their leaves and then they butt out again and suddenly all in one place were these crazy five years. And I wondered whether some of the concern about democracy wasn't a touch hyperbolic, and then I didn't wonder so much anymore. I, you, you pulled me back, you pulled me forth, because our institutions are strong. They hold, even under a tremendous amount of stress. We have one of the oldest constitutional orders on the planet. Uh, the Constitution was signed around the same time as the French Revolution, and they're on their fifth republic. Uh, we have a long-standing uh, political order in this country, why are you so worried about where things stand, and what's different about now? I think really what happened is that the Republican Party, starting really in 1968 with the Richard Nixon campaign and the recognition that there was a silent majority out there, knew that there was a kind of an angry constituency that could be tapped into. And they learned how to tap into that always staying within the confines of certain limits. They didn't want to really awaken this giant. They just wanted to awaken it on election day. And what they did was to use wedge issues. You saw this with Nixon, with crime, with uh, Newt Gingrich, with angry white men, Reagan with the Reagan Democrats, the, uh, the lady who gets food stamps in line, and Lee Atwater with the uh, Willie Horton material. It was clearly a play on trying to tap into this, but not to let it really flower. Donald Trump changed that. When he ran, he no longer accepted this kind of implicit boundary that people like George Bush, uh, John McCain, Romney, uh, George H.W. Bush, even Reagan, all of them stayed within this boundary. Reagan, I mean, uh, Trump came in and he basically was willing to just draw, render that asunder. And he, he successfully did that and he just opened up the gates. He, uh, he simultaneously converted the Republican Party from an, from an establishment party to a working class party. In many ways, you could say that he democratized the, the Republican Party by giving voice to the actual majority of voters. But he did so in a way that cracked open and brought out the worst of this constituency's resentments and angers, and he directed them in a fashion that was really dangerous. And I think he has pushed the margins and if you look at the Republican Party 
and the Republican Party only, this point of going past a turning point, I think they are very close to that turning point, if not past it. You can't say that about the whole American electorate because of independents and Democrats and because some Republicans are still not there. But the majority of Republicans are pretty far, pretty close to, if not over the edge. And uh, although I, I'm reluctant to give credit to any one person when you have a system like this, Trump really was an actor of major proportions in this process. We have had iconoclastic politicians before, norm-busting politicians, non-nicety-observing politicians before. Was there something different about America by the time 2016 rolls around that makes it possible for a campaign like that to succeed where they've been marginal or minority tastes in the past? Yes, I mean, you had people like uh, George Wallace, you had uh, Pat Buchanan in the past, who actually did appeal to a lot of very similar people as Trump has. Something has been going on, and I'm not sure. Some of this, I have to say, is the responsibility of liberalism. Liberalism has pushed the margins in many ways for many voters beyond the point where they can uh, really accept it. The anger at political correctness, many voters, not just white working class voters, but many voters find it hard to take the burden of having to live under a liberal regime in terms of what you can say, the jokes you can make at work, the uh, just your general lifestyle. That's only one aspect of many. Uh, but th th I think that this has been building up. But to be honest, I, I don't know why it suddenly burst at this point, except for Trump. Uh, if it's been there all along, if Trump had come along in 1968, would he have been able to do this? I don't think so. But something clearly has been building. And I think a lot of it has to do with the isolation and the separation of rural America from, from urban America, the, uh, the, the growing intensity and the polarization where voters now are what political scientists call consistent. They hold the same, if you're a Republican, you hold conservative views in general, you hold conservative views right down the line. If you're a liberal a Democrat, you hold liberal views right down the line. So there's become a real antagonism between the two. This has created a kind of tribal contest that did not exist when there were many more voters who basically were cross-pressured. There were uh, anti-abortion Democrats. There were pro-civil rights uh, Republicans. That, that made for much more, uh, it, it prevented the formation of clear adversaries. You now have, you've, and Trump came along at a time when the idea of clear adversaries had become built into the system in a way that just had been building, but it reached, may have reached a certain point of no return. We'll see. Gallup and other pollsters have asked Americans about their trust in institutions and asked, usefully, the same questions year after year. Yeah. Uh, sometimes trust, always trust, never trust, about the press, about the academy, about the judicial system, about medical science, and on and on. 
And all of them, with the exception of the military, all the major institutions in society have seen a broad and deep decline in trust since the 1960s. I wonder if a Trump becomes more possible, more plausible, when he figures out that you don't have to be right, you just have to be the loudest voice in the room, the most audacious voice in the room. I think he's already figured that out. Uh, it, that, that is his modus operandi. He, he clearly does not abide by truth in any real sense, and he just declares as factual untruths. But he has, and he has, well, he's raised the negative view of the FBI and the Department of Justice, which the FBI used to be pretty well liked uh, by Republicans and more distrusted by Democrats. It's now totally reversed. He, he has exhibited a great deal of power in being able to do this, along with the Republican Congress, which is demonizing the FBI like with a vengeance. And as someone who grew up way by, I hate to admit this, but during my childhood, the McCarthy years, all this democratic liberal trust in the FBI is a little bit queeze-making. But uh, with the gray hairs in this room, I may share that view, uh, but it's been a real reversal. And uh, he, there's one of the really striking things that I think it was Pew that did this. They asked before Trump ran and was in the race in early 2015, they asked voters, could you support a candidate whose personal life was uh, immoral? They, they ranked the responses by religions. The most critical of that were evangelical Christians. They were like at 22%. The rest, uh, whatever it is, 78% uh, said they could not. Other religions were much more mixed. and They, they asked it after, in about 2017, and the evangelical Christians had gone from 22% willing to support an immoral person to 72%. I mean, the, the politicization of morality has now become endemic, and it's, and it's not true of only of Republicans. I, uh, you can see this also among Democrats and liberals. Throughout the book, there's an attempt to get at who people say they are versus the things they actually do identity as a marker and the way you form a set of opinions around that chosen identity. You know, in many American communities, there's a very heavy reliance, for instance, on Social Security and on Social Security disability insurance in particular. And in many of those same communities, they vote very heavily for politicians who say, we're going to change Social Security. We're going to cut back on it. We're going to make you retire later. We're going to means test it. In many American communities, there's a stout defense of the health care status quo before the Affordable Care Act. But when you went into these neighborhoods and talked to people, they would tell you, well, I, you know, I've spent, I've fronted money for medical care that I'm now waiting to get back from the insurance company 
but now it's three months and four months. It's thousands of dollars uh, for a PPO. And when you'd say, well, doesn't that mean that the current system doesn't really work for you? They'd start talking to you about socialism. The way who we say we are lines up with our real needs and, and our real political attitudes, you've found many times, isn't it an exact science. It's a more like a sentimental science. Well, first, you have to point out, I have to point out that Trump pl- did something crucially important for his campaign in 2015. He declared that Social Security and Medicare, unlike any of his other Republican opponents, he would not cut either one of those two programs. He stood out, and he became seen publicly in polling as a moderate in that campaign because of his stand on those two key social welfare issues. That allowed many working-class voters for whom Social Security and Medicare are, are litmus test issues to vote for him. The other thing is that one of the th- and I, uh, I, ha- I hate to admit this, but academics have really, in the Trump years, emerged as with much more insight than you might say that they had in the past. And this concept of identity has been developed so that a concept that they call affect- affective identity or affective polarization, where you're not so much opposed to someone because of their beliefs, but because you believe they are threatening you and your identity. This is one of the things that has happened as people have developed these two clear bodies of opinion, left and right. They, the people on the left see the right and the people on the right see the left as threatening not just uh, policies that they believe in, but their very being. I mean, a woman who believes that uh, choice is a, her choice on abortion is essential to her ability to fulfill her role in life it sees republicans as threatening with their stance on abortion not just taking a bad policy but as actually defying her ability to achieve what she wants to achieve in life and what her daughters will be able to achieve in life. It's a very different sense, and this is what they call uh, two people I would name, Nishanto Iyengar at Stanford and Liliana Masson at uh, Johns Hopkins have developed this idea of effective polarization very effectively to show how this really changes the nature of politics into something where you're something that's embedded in the person, the the identity. It goes beyond just a, what we know as identity politics to sort of your very being is at stake, and an election then takes on this importance to, of the outcome that it didn't have before. It used to be if Republicans won, it's too bad a Democrat would say next time around. Now a lot of people can't sleep. I, I can't tell you the number of people I know who say that when even when George Bush was in office, George W. Bush, they couldn't sleep at night. They, they just kept them awake. And, and I'm sure that was true in this other side in the case of Obama. 
I think this this is happening more and more. Jonathan Rausch, who you cite in the book, yep. uh, for a long time known around Washington as a conservative writer, the ground has shifted under his feet in a way that I'm not sure he'd even call himself that anymore. But he asks, what if the increase in partisanship isn't about anything? That it's shirts and skins, blue team and red team. And it's you talk about the clear evidence of partisan tribalism, that is, holding fast to these ideas, not because you've thought them through or you actually support them, but because you think the other side believes the opposite. I, I think Jonathan is, is dead on. and uh, there, there, there are two forms of, pol- at least two, but at least one is what I was calling effective polarization. The other is ideological polarization, where you are ideologically differing. The effect of polarization makes it personal and makes it much more subject to angry emotions. Uh, but the two align with each other. They're not, it's, uh, it's not entirely red team, blue shirts versus red shirts. It's, it's, it's a mix of ideology differences and this Trump, uh, tri- tribal tight team competition. But the two combined make it really a aggravating situation. And you asked why did it, at the beginning, you asked why did this happen so recently. I think these trends really came to much more fruition uh, in the, really they were, they've been building through this 21st century and they reached a certain boiling point. And that's what Trump tapped into. And he tapped into it just at the moment after, if you look at the 2008 recession, Trump voters took a hit in 2008 that really separated them economically from Democratic voters. Democratic voters have done very, the Democratic congressional districts, if you look at them, have done very well since 2008. Their GDP growth has been upward and steady. The GDP growth in red districts, where Trump and Republican congressional candidates are in command, has been flat or declining. So there's been this steady separation. But the main thing is, in a country where you want to see your life improving and children's lives improving, it's working for Democrats, it's not working for Republicans. So you, you have a, a lot of compounding factors at work here. But one of the interesting things, if you watch politics the way it's rolled out in this country over the past 45 years, is that a lot of these effects come through Republicans realizing their dreams, deregulation, um, internationalization of supply chains, offshoring of manufacturing, anti-union rhetoric. They got what they wanted, leaving the economy um, more efficient, leaving consumer goods in many cases cheaper, but also leaving mill towns in South Carolina devastated. Um, the shoes that used to be made in, in uh, Haverhill, Massachusetts, and, and in Missouri, and in Rochester, New York, aren't made any, any, anymore in those places. They're made in Brazil and Mexico and Italy and Malaysia. 
but then when the, the chickens come home to roost, it's in the rhetoric, in the way we talk about these things, it's Democrats who end up carrying the water for it. It's really weird. Uh, all during the time that I was covering the Hill in the late 90s and people were starting to grumble about NAFTA, they talked about Bill Clinton, not about Carla Hills and George W. Bush, who hammered out NAFTA. And you know, one of the first things Clinton did when he came through the door was oversee its passage and, and signing the bill. The vulnerability of the supply chains in pandemic world was a consequence of the way we've changed manufacturing in this country over the last several decades. People are blaming Joe Biden as if he did it. Uh, it it's kind of odd. I agree. One, though, voters don't go through the kind of logical thinking you're outlining. But there are a series of other facts contributing to this. One is that Bill Clinton was really a pro-trade, neoliberal proponent of globalization. He, uh, he was in 2000, under, before he left office, the China entered WTO. And you can look at the China trade process uh, and you can see where, it, where trying to trade hurt. That's where Republicans made out like bandits. Uh, so it's hard to disassociate Democrats and liberals on those globalization issues that you cite. The second thing is that Trump made a point of separating himself from his own party establishment on just those issues. On trade, he was explicitly anti-trade, anti-NAFTA, anti-the Paris Agreement, all, all those environmental and trade agreements basically he said no to. So he sent out a very clear message that he, at least, as head of the Republican Party, would lead an anti-global administration. And I think that the combination of sort of the dual responsibility of Democrats and Republicans for the global globalization of our economy, as beneficial it has been, has been and Trump's renu specific renunciation, not just of Democrats, but in, when he ran in the primary, he ran very much against the same Republicans who had been pushing those issues. He ran, and he ran very much against immigration, specifically against Jeb Bush, who was very pro-immigration. And he killed George, uh, Jeb Bush uh, early on, in part because of that. So he basically turned that issue into a Republican issue in substance, not just in rhetoric. Uh, whereas your point before then, I think, is well taken, that the Republican establishment was very much in favor of all those things that you're describing. But I hear so seldom anybody stepping forward to say, look, we all own this. And you, Walmart shoppers, who went into a store where everything that you found once you passed the greeter was made in China, you own this too. Instead, the way this was talked about was that some mysterious malevolent forces went and bought stuff in China to pawn off on us, and now look at where, where we are. As if we weren't all co-conspirators in this. As if we all, all weren't shareholders in this. If, if somebody has a toaster oven made in the United States, 
I'd be surprised <laughs> if. Uh, what can I say? I mean, it, it, I agree. The difference is that Trump was willing to make make this his opposition explicit. Democrats were split. You had union Democrats who were against these things. You had uh, NAFTA, I think, passed with a majority of Republican, with a stronger base of support in Republican voters in Congress than in than Democratic votes in Congress. I could be wrong on that, but I think that's the case. So I, it, it's. Uh, and trade has always, it's a very complex, it, it's, it's hard to get real traction, people understanding that until it comes home as a bread and butter issue. But uh, you, what can I say? You have a point, but. One of the time-lapse stories that very much does have an arc that comes through loud and clear in this book, in the early chapters, there's speculation about what Trump will do. Will he really do these things he says that he wants to do? What will he mean to the office? And as we go through the chapters, your view starts to sharpen. Your understanding of what he's really up to in his MO starts to, starts to sharpen. What conclusions did you make after it was all over? Well, you know, I would say November 3rd, 2020, but we really have to Sneak January 6, 2021 in there as well. Uh, did you see some of that coming? There, there sort of worked for me early on with Trump. There were two insights that I got from people that I talked with, especially a guy named Jonathan Haidt, uh, who has written a lot on the psychological thing. One, he I had never heard of this concept. It may, everyone here may have, but I was ignorant of it. The idea of reactance, the idea that there is a, sometimes people hear things like political correctness stuff, and they just react, and they're angry, and they, they become opposed automatically. And the role that reactance plays in politics, and especially for the Trump voter, the other thing was where it suddenly, I hadn't even, writing about American politics for 40 years, the, the idea of authoritarianism had never really, in America, had never crossed my mind. And at one point, though, Trump's rhetoric and the kind of things he was calling for suddenly began to click as authoritarian. In, in their direction, if not in their, their edging towards authoritarianism, which I was really, I remember the first time writing the word authoritarian in a column, and I was really surprised at myself and surprised that the, this concept was there. And uh, that, that's what led up to this. Then getting to Trump at the end of his administration, through January 6th and the past, the idea that the, this guy could impose his big lie on the whole country, and roughly, I think by my estimation, 75 million Republican voters say they agree with his big lie, even though it has been provably proven wrong 
and all the court decisions and everything else. That that is just an incredible phenomenon, and I, still I'm trying to understand how such a large body of the American electorate. It's not a majority, but a, a very large share of it could be persuaded to hold such false and incorrect views. And I, that's where I think we're in danger of a tipping point, to get back to the book title, because that's the point where you don't need a majority to really corrupt a country. And you can look at Europe leading up to the Second World War, Italy, Germany, the kind of factions that developed didn't start with a majority. They started with a block of voters and then capitalized on what that, and they pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And there's that what's striking is how little pushback there is even among Republicans who know better uh, leaders in the House and Senate, especially in the Senate, where Mitch McConnell knows better, John Thune knows better, uh, they they know it's bullshit, and they're not willing to say that. And they also know that their party is playing with fire, and they're not willing to really stand up to it. So that you don't have to have a majority of the, of the party when there is such a strong block that leaders like those are unwilling to put their necks out and challenge it. I could make a case for that election and its aftermath demonstrating the solidity of our institutions or easily make the opposite case that one of the things that the 2020 election showed is how much our system relies on everybody playing by the rules. And finally, along comes someone who did not and would not, and it really caused eruption that we're living with even now. Where do you come down? I'm still in doubt whether it's... it's uh, there, there was, and the 22 election, 2022 election seemed to enforce the view, in, reinforce the view that there is a lot of resilience in the system. In every purple state where there was a statewide election with a Republican candidate clearly aligned with Trump and the lie, those candidates lost. The Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Arizona, a lot of very important key states in presidential elections, the electorate did not go along with that. So there was some reason for optimism in that. Uh, but I think we're still at this uh, kind of uh, odd era. We don't know, you know, how, is, is Biden going to be able to hold up going into uh, 2024? Uh, uh, looks like Trump is going to get the nomination if he doesn't really screw up somehow, though he seems to be able to screw up all the time anyway. Uh, we... We're in a, f a funny, but we are, this is a weird time. And I, I Donald Trump called Arizona Governor Steve Ducey while Governor Ducey was signing the instruments that confirmed the outcome of the 2020 election in his state. He looked at the phone, 
saw who it was. The ringtone was hailed to the chief. He put the phone down and didn't answer it. Brad Raffensperger, the chief electoral officer of the state of Georgia, was on the phone with Donald Trump for over 90 minutes. Here's the most powerful man in the world yelling at you down the phone. He didn't budge. Um, An alternate slate of electors wasn't sent to Washington from Pennsylvania, as was uh, feared. Um, The thing worked, but do you come out of there thinking, well, we were lucky? Or is there enough resilience in the system? Well, since then, a lot of the legitimate election officials in the country, a lot of them have resigned their jobs. uh, And they are being replaced in many cases by really pro-Trump appointees. Secondly, a number of states have switched the power to decide who won the election from election bureaucrats to the state legislatures. I think it's about 12 or so states have done that. Most notably Texas. Texas. And Texas is now trying to take away the power in Houston for them to determine the elections officials of Houston to decide who won the election in Houston to count the votes. So there's a lot of potential for for more mischief and mischief that has legislative backing to it than there was before. Uh, Now, the problem for Republicans is most of those states where they've done this were already going to vote for Trump anyway. So it's not as if he's gained something that would add to his electoral college vote in 2024. But it just increases the aura of corruption that is potential to be there. And if Democrats begin doubting the legitimacy of the outcome of elections, and join Republicans, then we've got a real problem where both parties share a dubious view of of what's happening. And uh, polling showed that very briefly during the January 20th and the lead up to it process, a lot of Democrats were saying to pollsters that they would be willing to support violent responses if that were if they were to, if Trump were able to succeed pushing that argument. So. I was at the Capitol on January 6th. And talk about people high on their own supply. These people had convinced themselves not only that uh, the president had won, really won the election, but that they were empowered to do something about it in a kinetic fashion. It wasn't just standing outside the Capitol and yelling slogans or holding up signs. It was up to them. They had created a Minuteman moment for themselves, and they were going to storm Concord, and they did. Uh, And then, on Inauguration Day, the capital of the United States was ringed by 12-foot fences. That was a bad moment. It's a great moment in that a new president elected was being sworn in and 
all of that stuff was going according to the rules. But the fact that major streets leading into Washington were closed, the Capitol itself was, uh, was, the mall was emptied of a crowd because it was just felt, we can't do this. We just can't do it. Are we setting ourselves up? You know, point of no return is a pretty dire title. Are we setting ourselves up for a replay next year? I don't know. My, my, my intuitive feeling is that if it's Biden, Trump, Trump is going to lose by a bigger margin than he did in 2020, and he's going to take a lot of House Republicans down with him. The Senate looks like it's very going to be very hard for Democrats to keep, given the makeup of, of the 34 seats that are up for election. Uh, but even if Trump loses worse, I, when you have all these believers in Trump and believers that the Democrats are so evil they will steal elections everywhere, uh, I don't know. I just don't know the answer to that question, whether you'd have a, a, a broad, roughly what, 1,400 people have participated in the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection, something like that. That's tiny fraction of people. Would there be more in 2024, assuming Trump loses? I don't know. Let me change direction a little bit. I wonder if you think the way people who do what you do for a living frame, use different lenses when they cover Republicans and Democrats, their challenges and chances as political parties. When Republicans do something that's unusual or counterintuitive, it's not hard to find a columnist or even a reporter saying, they're so crafty, they must have something up their sleeve. Even if it looks like it's just odd. Yeah. I'm searching for a neutral <laughs> adjective. When Democrats win, it's not that hard to find columnists who will write things that are headlined, once again, Democrats in disarray. Uh, there, there seems to be uh, kind of um, home team coverage among reporters that holds Democrats to a different standard for success, for failure, for uh, selling their national programs, for all kinds of things that political parties do? Uh, to some extent, I think you're right. Where I think there has... Democrats are always in disarray, so... It's not as if they... So it's a safe headline. It's a safe headline. And um, there was a fuss over a New York Times headline. I forget what it was. I forget anyway. They, um, but I think where the press has had trouble in dealing with the Democratic Party is where liberalism has gone too far and pushed over the edge. And you do, there has not, I think, the, the problems that liberalism has had in addressing 
questions from transgender issues to homelessness. And I'm not saying that they should be addressed from a conservative point of view, but they have tended to address these issues in ways that alienate middle America voters. And I think the press on these issues tends to be tied in with the Democratic Party and liberal in the sense on these social issues in a way that it doesn't recognize the, the scope of anger that is being provoked. I remember covering quite a while ago a debate in the, I, not covering, I was reading, following the debate in New York over should contraceptives be distributed at junior high schools. Kids are uh, in the seventh, eighth, and ninth grades, basically 12 to 14. Should, and the reporting was generally, had the tone of, why not? This will cut back on a, 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 a pregnancies, it will cut back on social, sexually transmitted diseases. It's a very reasonable policy to adopt. Uh, but that never conveyed the notion, and I don't share this view, but it's there, that the Catholic critics and others have, that it's not the function of the state to do things that really shape the grant approval to sexual activity by, by giving out contraceptives, they're suggesting that the state sanctions sexual activity among the 12-year-olds in the uh, schools. Now, that, that view just didn't come across in the stories. And I think there's a legitimate concern about that among, uh, on the right, that the liberal press as such is liberal on these issues and does not understand why they would hold these views. And I say that as someone who is pretty liberal on all these subjects, but who, in going around, when I used to do a lot more of this door-to-door -door talking to people, you really learn a lot that there are very decent people who have concerns that are just not recognized. I gotta tell you, I, um, I think that's a legitimate debate to have an important debate to have. And in the process of the debate, people on all sides of the question would hear information that might temper their views on an issue. So the press might be failing them, but I wonder also whether politics is failing as the place where we work some of this stuff out because you can't hear a nuanced debate on Capitol Hill about some of these critical c questions about our daily lives and the lives we share with each other. You, it's really hard to hear s anything that isn't almost lampoonish f coming from, from all sides of the aisle about the other people. So they argue with each other, but they don't really make a compelling case for the thing that they're up there in the well talking in favor of. What's happened is to some extent that 
a person who tries to do what you describe faces potential censure and sanction from his own party. And this, you could take the case in Florida, Charlie Crist was the gov Republican governor of Florida. He ran for the Senate against Marco Rubio. One of the things that cost Charlie Crist the election was that when Obama came down after a hurricane had damaged Florida, Crist appeared with him at an event and put his arm around Obama. This picture then was used showing to Republicans, showing here's a guy who sold you out. Sold you out, he basically was thanking the guy that was sending a whole lot of money and aid to Florida, but it was used in a way that was very damaging to Christ. Now, that kind of thing happens all the time when you, the, the, the rule now in politics is if you're in the middle of the road, you're road kill. And sort of like, uh, it, that's where the cars just drive right over the armadillos that you find in Texas. You just, and so that pushes everybody to the left or to the right, depending on their party. And the whole primary system has gotten very corrupt in this sense that it, it really pushes both parties farther and farther away. And polarization itself, they found that the best way to mobilize vo your voters on your side is to make them as angry and fearful as possible. That means demonizing the other side. So uh, the way to win is to polarize more. So you have all kinds of forces pushing people farther and farther apart, and that middle area just gets left empty. And uh, no one wants to be in the middle there. Tom Ansel, we have some excellent questions from the floor here at the Com Commonwealth Club. The rise of current American authoritarianism is coincident with the growth of the Internet. What's the role of siloed information sources, and how do we find our way back? Uh, if I knew the way back, I would be... Uh, um, uh, at any rate, the, but the, it, it's true. This, the Internet has... and the decline of the central role of newspapers and the network television, uh, there, there is no sort of arbiter. used to be way back, again, shows how old I am, that a guy like Walter Cronkite could be sort of the, he sort of would call uh, strikes and balls on the polit politician system. And classically, when he turned against the Vietnam War, the American people turned against the Vietnam War. There are no institutions left, and the internet as a substitute is just the opposite of, of a, of a, of a persuasive. It's, all, it's a jumble of opinions and you pick your own. I think the internet has been uh, very, very damaging to democracy, even though it is a democratizing instrument. It is, it's, it's, it's one of those dualities where it's got this good, where it's spreading a lot of information. And I use it all the time for information. And it has a, some evil consequences a tremendous source of information and making us dumber. The lovely yeah, paradox. Yeah. If Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, do you think the Republican Party would have continued 
on a Trumpist path or on a more regular Republican path? Uh, that's a good question. Would Trump... Um, the question is how much had, though, did Trump during that pro process of getting the nomination and then uh, running against Hillary, how much did he change the Republican Party? I think he substantially changed the Republican Party in awakening these white working class voters who had really been the, the soldiers and not the generals under the old establishment. He, and, and they became aware that they had power. So I think Trumpism, in a sense, would have had a, I don't know how strong it would have been, but it would have been a factor regard if Hillary had won. Hillary also would have brought out the worst in all Republicans in Congress. Uh, McConnell would have used every inch of his power in the Senate and Republicans in the House would have done the same to demonize her and block her at every possible way. Be very interesting to know whether if Hillary, if Hillary was in there and if she had a Supreme Court, now I don't know how fast the first, pretty early in Trump's term, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Uh, if that happened under Hillary, what would McConnell have done if he was in charge of the Senate? I don't know. What is the biggest challenge facing journalists today? Trump. <laughs> I, I mean, he has been the, 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 how do you handle a person who lies and lies and lies? It's, it's just, it's a real pain in the ass, to tell you the truth. Uh, and no one has the answer to this. The, you can say, the problem is, start saying he lies, he lies, he lies. You look, you look kind of like a nutcase on the left. Uh, but if you list, you can't just repeat what he says. I, um, I think that was a f something of a failure early on that people didn't realize how likely Trump was to win the presidency. And so the press didn't do as much investigative work on him, his ties to the mafia, the, the legions of small businesses that he had left with bills. They covered some of that, but they didn't cover it in a way that really would have been affected, effective. And they let Trump get in without casting the doubts that should have been cast on him <coughs> had he been treated as a more serious candidate. But your paper, the New York Times, and a lot of publications and a lot of news sources fell in behind, did some terrific reporting on the businesses stiffed by Trump over the years. Some of them went bankrupt. Oh, some yeah. of them had to shed uh, large numbers of staff. Some of them became insolvent as a result because this was one of their largest contracts. The kind of person who was portrayed in the media as a Trump voter um, should have been deeply offended by regular working people and contractors getting screwed. When I asked, during that campaign, when I asked people about it, they said they didn't really believe that it happened because it was in the New York Times, which signals a deeper problem than just not knowing how to cover Trump. That's true. The other thing is I think it, it has to be covered by TV in this age. And it wasn't, TV news has, in my opinion, 
fallen way down. Even in an, when January 20th occurred, they covered that. But here you got a president, ex-president, who was under investigation. There would be nights when there was no Trump coverage at all, uh, not recently. And I, uh, I think for it to sink in nowadays, you have to be on TV and long articles in the New York Times don't carry the weight that they used to. There's been an alarming recent decline in trust in our public schools. Do you see that as part of the same Trumpian trends or something different? Well, I think it's more actually as much DeSantis in a way and as much a broader Republican. Republicans recognize that they had an issue with Glenn Youngkin got elected in in Virginia against Terry McAuliffe, sort of a kingmaker in the Democratic Party. Youngkin ran against publication that allowed public education that was abandoning merit testing in at least one big school and second. Uh, critical race theory being used, and uh, gender fluid issues in schools. All of those, Youngkin ran on, and he won. And that, I think, opened the door for the Republican Party, and they have been pushing that more and more, and it fits in also with their efforts to expand vouchers and choice to, to include private schools. So it, it fits a, a, a larger strategy uh, the more you can discredit public schools. Um, so I wouldn't really put that as uh, give Trump credit, full, certainly not full credit. I think there is a real movement within the Republican Party and I think it's going to accelerate. You have these Moms for Liberty is, is gaining some strength the, uh, you have problems here in California with, uh, and, and in other places where the Muslim community has, has uh, emerged as a conservative force in, in public education on these exact same issues. So th th there clearly is a mobilization potential, and Republicans are, are not going to leave that sitting there going to waste. They're going to do what they can to make hay on that. If Trump is not convicted of one or more crimes before November 4th, 2024, can non-Trump Republicans peel off a meaningful number of Trump MAGA votes? Peel, well, they're not going to vote for him. I mean, you mean meaningful? I think, I think Trump is, has losing ground in the suburbs, and the suburbs are the real battleground. And the suburbs are where you get a lot of independents who lean towards the Republican Party, some lean to the Democratic Party, but they're not real partisans in one way. They're loose partisans, or whatever you'd want to call it. And I think he's had real problems there, and the suburbs are growing. The rural communities are declining in size. Uh, the, the white working class, whites without college degrees, are declining, whereas whites with college degrees are increasing in number. All these trends may cause problems for Trump looking towards 2024. Mm -hmm. 
You accuse media of not doing enough due diligence on Trump. Would you say they did a fair job on Joe Biden? So is Trump your problem or the Republicans? I wish I knew more about the whole Hunter Biden situation. And it's not just Hunter Biden. There's a brother named James, I believe, uh, who also worked with Hunter. And they made a lot of money from lots of money. I'm talking millions of dollars with contracts from foreign governments during and after Biden's tenure in the as vice president, that I, I think that's an area that it, it's certainly going to be explored more by Republicans. But they do such a lousy job on the Republican side with their investigations, calling up sleazy witnesses that are beyond sleazy, that are really, they're so incompetent when they in fact have, I think, something that might be worthwhile looking at, but they then they, they turn it into grandiose schemes of the Biden family, including Joe Biden, you know, engaging in multi-million dollar scams. And uh, they, they reach that conclusion before the evidence is, is anywhere near in. But I think this whole, the Hunter Biden thing does not look good to me and it would look in normal circumstances, it's pretty sleazy. Well, you spend a couple of hundred pages giving us chapter and verse about the Republic being in danger, of going as far as to say that the Republican Party has become an anti-democratic party. Would that kind of thing, those dealings that you were talking about, the businesses of uh, President Biden's brother and son, have gotten more attention if there wasn't um, a widespread feeling that one side is very different from the other in an electoral contest? I think it would have. Uh, I began reporting in 19, well, national reporting in 1974, uh, before even some of the people, some people here were born. Um, the, at that time, Watergate was a big scandal, but democratic scandals were absolutely fair game. And the way to get ahead for a reporter was to knock off a politician of either party. And that's how you, if you got a scalp, you moved up the ladder. Uh, Nowadays, I think there's much more partisan consideration that goes into that kind of thinking. And you don't see, I don't see any mainstream publication going after the Biden family's activities in the way that they might otherwise. Why has the mainstream media been reluctant to call out that certain politicians are liars, Trump being the most famous liar, and instead gives them PR and platforms in their front page reporting? Was it only after January 6th that Trump's lies were noted on the front page? No, I think before they were noted, and it was a constant, it was a big debate within the, my own paper, the uh, New York Times, when would they actually use the word lie? And that word lie did appear 
I think around 2018, but I, uh, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, and well, Dean Baquet, uh, Dean Baquet uh, had brought it up that uh, you cross a very important line when you start to use the word lie because that says definitively that the person knew they weren't telling the truth. Yes. But it was pretty definitive. <laughs> um, uh, and maybe they waited too long and the agony may have undermined sort of the, dem the legitimacy of the press in raising the issue. Uh, I, I think before you saw a lot of, you didn't see always the word lie, but you would see efforts to say, on the, uh, they would quote Trump and they would say, uh, reporting suggests that uh, on that day or in that event, in fact, X, Y, and Z happened, not A, B, and C, as Trump said. It was a little hard for the reader to follow all that, and it, and it, but it still was an attempt but as I say, I think Trump posed the biggest dilemma for the media of my career. And I've been in this business 50-some years, I think. The phrase purposely, purposely misstated started to appear all over the place, which is only the outer office for lying. And uh, the word dissemble started to, uh, to make a comeback, which you know, it's not a great word. What's the best piece of professional advice that you've received, and who is it from? Jesus. Um, he inspires many reporters. I, I'm not a religious person. Um, actually, the best advice, one of them was from David Broder, who I worked with at the Washington Post for many years and was the dean of the political press corps for more years than I, anyway, for a long time. He always said that the best thing to do was to go out and go door to door in a neighborhood. And he would always try to pick a neighborhood or places that where the, the votes swung, swung back and forth, not an entirely Democratic place or a Republican place. And I think he was right on. Uh, I learned more doing door to door canvassing. Uh, I remember going to the Inland Empire here in this state and learning tons from people about their views, what really angered them, and in, in, all kinds of things that I, were not even anywhere near on the radar. That, uh, that would, and at any rate, that, that was probably the best piece of advice. Um, the other piece of advice actually came from a politician, or not from a colleague, Early in my career, when I first began, way, way back covering politics in Baltimore, uh, I asked, I heard there was a boss in, in, in Baltimore politics back then named Jack Pollock, and a guy named Arlen Specter was running, and I had heard that uh, Jack Pollock was, he was getting Jack Pollock's support, even though Specter claimed to be a reformer. So I called up Specter, and I said, is Jack Pollock paying for part of your campaign? He said, no way. So I, uh, so I went to another reporter and to, who had covered politics for a long time, and I told him what I, the conversation. He, he said, you asked the wrong question. 
he should have asked, are you paying Jack Pollock? And he was right. I called up Spectre and I said, I feel really stupid, but were you pay are you paying Jack Pollock? And he went, uh, 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 well, yes. <laughs> and I learned how the directions worked. Uh, Please thank Tom Edsel. Ray Suarez. Thomas Byrne Edsel is the author of The Point of No Return, American Democracy at the Crossroads. And I'd like to thank him, along with the Canon Jacqueline Broad Family Fund, for supporting tonight's event. There are books outside. I'm Ray Suarez. I'll see you next time. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.